I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John, you'll find that toward the end of the New Testament. After Peter, 1 and 2 Peter. I'm going to be reading the opening chapter and the first three verses of chapter 2. It's just 13 verses, but very important as uh, John writes to a group of of, uh, church members, most likely in what we know of as modern-day Turkey, uh, Asia, the same place, he would have sent uh, the, the Revelation, book of Revelation that he wrote. But let us give attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. And that ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now we've been in the book of Matthew for some some time, and you were not expecting necessarily to have gone to the book of 1 John, but John, as I mentioned, we know he wrote the what we call the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John. This letter reads very much like that, and we know that he wrote the Revelation also, so he is certainly one of the significant writers in the New Testament, the beloved apostle John. In this book, he presents 
he, several times he makes statements, but one of his closing arguments, he says, I have written these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. And so uh, that is the big picture of what he's doing. It's a book about assurance, and he lays out some tests in there. There's a test of doctrine, what we believe, People, the, the true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ confesses that he has come in the flesh, believes certain things. There is the, the test of love. You might call it the moral test of love for one another. And then there is an ethical test of obedience. That even now, that's part of the reason I read to verse 3 of chapter 2. It introduces that section. And you'll note he started with the idea that there is life in, uh, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, eternal life, fellowship with God the Father and with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. He started out by saying that there is a certain nature, an aspect to God, that He is light, He is holiness, He is pure. And we read in chapter 1 these if-then statements where he is directing us how to agree with God. I can't get before a holy God, a God of light, and say, I'm not a sinner. And what we're going to focus on today primarily are the two verses of chapter 2, which speaks about the fact of what then. So we have a statement about who God is. God is light. We have a statement, the second half of the first chapter, of saying, well, in light of that, in light of who he is, I'm this kind of sinner, and then we need to come to how God deals with that great, as our, our elder Brian mentioned so rightly from the text in Isaiah, sin separates. How do we get back together? How do we have fellowship? And verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I may even say it again. You just need to go ahead and memorize these verses and use them regularly in your Christian life. Nearly every word is significant. That's why I'm going to jump in on this right now, and we're going to get started. But we're talking essentially about how God solves the, my problem of separation from him. And the first thing I want to remind us of is my first point, and you'll pick up on some P's here. Um, the first main point is my present, our present problem. And here we're speaking about the horribleness of sin. What is it about sin that is so terrible? Because he says in verse 1, if anyone does sin, we're going to come back to the opening phrase. He's writing that we might not sin, and, and we hear that and say, well, uh, I've got a problem then. But he goes right into the, but if anyone sins, well, what is it about sin that is so dreadful? And, of course, the answer is that our sin exposes us to the just wrath of the Almighty God. We live in His world. We are His creatures. We are accountable to Him. And literally from the very beginning of this book, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the book of Revelation, we see that the great problem of mankind is our sin. 
There's a whole vocabulary of sin. There's sin and there's transgression and there's rebellion and there's trespass. And, and, and it is all this self-centered, self-focused, this autonomous desire. I will not listen to you, God. I will do it. What, Frank Sinatra? I did it my way. Uh, and that's a damnable way to live. What is it about sin that is so horrible? It exposes us to that. Our, our shorter catechism rightly brings these things out. I always want to encourage us to know those documents. Question 19 says, What is the misery of that estate into which man fell? All mankind by their fall into sin, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. And it has always been that way. John himself, in his gospel, this same author is the one who writes in John chapter 3, he not only writes, of course, the great text, John 3.16, but toward the end of that chapter, John 3.36, he writes and says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rest upon him. Paul will say the same thing in Romans 1.18. And what we want, just by way of such a present uh, illustration, is the whole virus thing. The world, and, and we ourselves, the church, we are, are greatly focused on this. Not necessarily anything wrong about trying to do the right thing in regard to what we think we know about the coronavirus. But there is today, and there has been ever since Adam and Eve, a much, much greater problem, a much, much greater virus because the virus of sin, whereas the coronavirus hasn't infected everybody yet, everybody is infected with this disease. The coronavirus, yes, it can do uh, some real damage. It can, it can take you out. It can kill you. That's the loss of physical life. This virus can lead to eternal loss of life. And so what we're addressing here is of enormous importance. Just, just by way of a couple of points of quick application on this first point, this is our present problem because even as Christian peoples, you know your own heart. You just, that's why every Lord's Day we take time to confess our sins afresh. Because we want to know fresh communion and life and fellowship with the living God. We know that's our problem. One of the things that's important by way of application he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That tells you that there is a wonderful power in this book, the scriptures, the Bible, that will help us avoid sin. The Bible is crucial in helping us war against sin. 
The Word of God is powerful. The author of Hebrews says it is living and active. The Word of God is creative. It's a hammer that can crush the hardness of my heart. It is a sweet garden, you might say, of promises that point to where life is really found. And so we want to understand by way of a quick application. You want to wage war against sin successfully. You must have the scriptures and be about them. And there's an interesting encouragement that comes in what he says. He says, I'm writing that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin. And you might think, well, anyone, that means he's writing to every one of us. It's, it, that statement is unqualified as to person. Young, old, spiritually mature, Spiritually immature, people, pastors, all are included. The ground is level, we say, at the foot of the cross. And so what we're talking about today, by all means, applies to you. And I love the fact that says, John says, if anyone sins, no sin you have committed is outside such a simple statement as that. It's unqualified as to sin. He doesn't divide up sins into categories such as big sins, little sins. We're not talking, he's not saying, well, if you, if, you, if you commit little sins, but oh no, you got to go somewhere else if you've committed big sins. Nope. He doesn't divide up into mortal sins and venial sins and things of that nature. He doesn't speak about sins that God will forgive and those he will not forgive. It's simply, hey, if today you find yourself a human being that sins, what I have to say is great news, and let's go to that. So we need fresh forgiveness. We need forgiveness. Our present problem is our sin. Our second main point is our present paraclete, our present paraclete. The Scripture says we have an advocate. Jesus is our advocate, and you might say, Bill, why did you just not say our present advocate? Because all of my other points start with P, and I had to find something that started with P. And paraclete, the Greek word, does, all right? So there you go, our present paraclete, which is our advocate. Uh, we, you know, we often think back upon our Lord's life and ministry. We think back upon his miracles. We think back upon his cross, his, his death, his burial. We think back historically to those things, which is right. The Lord's Supper reminds us. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But let me ask you the question. Um, what is Jesus presently doing today? Elder Wilson already gave the answer away, by the way, in his time of prayer. What is he doing right now on my behalf and on your behalf if you know the Lord Jesus? Uh, he is advocating for us. He is on our side. He is our advocate. Earlier in John chapter 1, when we have that great text that many of us have memorized, we are focused on God's covenant righteousness and justice. When he says, uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Here, there is 
this issue of the Lord Jesus and his advocacy. It's the intercessory work of Christ that is brought to the fore. And so, not to keep repeating myself, I want to make, when I said earlier, nearly every word in this section is important. We're going to dwell on that. We're going to kind of camp on this point for a moment. What is Jesus's activity now? What is one of the primary things he is doing? He is advocating for us. The word is in Greek paraclete. It gets translated comforter often. Uh, someone, the, the literal idea is someone who is called alongside and you get, sometimes it gets translated to comfort, to console, to, um, to encourage. But here it seems very right to understand it in a more judicial sense as that person. Basically, your defense lawyer would be the, the best thing to understand it. And so advocate. And, and even in the Latin of advocate, you get the idea of someone who is going to give voice for you, for your defense, for your benefit. John, this same author, uses, there, it's only, the word is only used about five times, and most of those, basically all the other times, are in John chapters 14 through 16, where the reference is to the Holy Spirit. But here is the reference to Jesus as our advocate, that one who comes alongside in the courtroom of God, and he will be speaking for us. Just as the Holy Spirit is given as a paraclete, as a comforter, as someone. To, he comes, you might say, ministering uh, from God, God's message of grace to us, to our heart. So the direction is to us. When we think about what John is referring to here, Jesus as an advocate, we think now about our defense attorney moving from us our need and bringing the request and bringing the defense to the living God, God our Father. Okay, so the, he, is, he is paraclete. But notice John, John is specific. He says we have an advocate. We've talked about that. His name and his traits are he is Jesus Christ the righteous. He is Jesus. He is human. He is the God-man, the, the incarnate Son of God who took to himself a perfect human body, a full human body. He is one with us. He is a human being. This is Jesus, his human name. That's what he was named by Joseph, his father. And that name lives forever in heaven, reminding us that this one lived a perfect life. We're going to get to that. But then it's not just that he says we have an advocate, Jesus, but he says we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not his last name. Christ is the title of who he is. And so now we understand in heaven right now, our advocate is the Christ. 
which means he is the one sent from the Father into this world as a human being, as, as the fulfilling all the promises and types of the Old Testament. He is that great Davidic king, anointed as king. He is that great prophet, but greater than Moses, Bringing the word. He is that great priest, greater than Aaron, greater than, uh, really greater than Melchizedek, all of them. This is the Christ who is in heaven for us. And then we have this wonderful statement before this God, the Father, who John said, He is pure light. There is not a blemish, not the least blemish in his character. Our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous. He is righteous. He is the one who came and sought me out, sought you out, rather than waiting for us to come to him. He is the one who is righteous in all the ways I am not. And that gives us confidence. This, there is a certain um, lack of, of parallelism with human courts. We can have great defense lawyers like Perry Mason, I don't think he ever lost a case, but he was pleading facts about the person he was defending. What is so grand about our advocate is he doesn't plead my pathetic record. He pleads his, and his is pure righteousness, a God-approved righteousness. He is the one who is the sacrifice for sin. We're going to get to that in a moment. And so he is righteous. He's lived righteously in my place and in your place. And so he is the one. He is the advocate. Note, secondly, he is an advocate with the Father. The Greek term here has a preposition which often gives the picture of being face-to-face. -face. Once again, this is not like human courts where to have like a father and a son, the father is the judge and, and a son a, an attorney or something, you say, well, you can't do that. You're not going to get justice that way. Well, in the heavenly courtroom, you do get justice that way. And this is part of the beauty of it. And so he is face to face with the, with the Father himself. Jesus is the Son who loves the Father and the Father who loves the Son. They serve as judge and advocate. Jesus, our advocate, can stand face to face with God as a son stands in relationship and fellowship with the Father because he is divine. And then note, he is the only advocate. There is a singularness to that. But you see, that's all you need. And by the way, he is not only the only advocate, but he is an all-sufficient one because we will have a reference in verse 2. But he, what he has done 
is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. There can be the universal proclamation of a gospel for all to come and fall in submission in true faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. None will be denied. None have ever outsend this. All the it's it's universal in scope. It's a, you might say eternal in time in the sense of covering all of human history is covered. This linear dimension and the spatial dimension, whether you're African or European or whatever, whatever century you've lived, this one has done all that is necessary for a sinner to say, "I trust you. Be my advocate." Well, what is the basis of his advocacy? I said it's not like uh, it's not like he has facts about me, but his portfolio is what he has done, and it is in this big word <laughs> happens to be a p word uh, propitiation. This is the foundation, his credentials uh, to propitiate is to turn away wrath. It is to offer that sacrifice that turns completely away wrath. There is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. You remember it was originally written in Hebrew, of course. The inspired scriptures, Hebrew. But it was translated into Greek. This term that John uses is the term that is used in the Greek Old Testament to, to be the title, to be the noun of the covering of the ark that sat in the Holy of Holies where the priest went in one time a year with what? With blood and placed it there. And the sins of the people of Israel were forgiven. What a tremendous, we, we've moved in a sense from the courtroom to the temple. Jesus has made propitiation. He is to, he is the propitiation. He has died for us and in doing so has propitiated, has appeased, has pacified, has taken away the wrath of God. One of the great hymns, you, if you're taking notes, Make sure you go back and look at the lyrics of this. Before the throne of God above. I won't read all of it to you, but it speaks with great application to this. What is true of you today? He said, our first, we do have a present problem. We still sin. But what is also true of every child of God is he has a present advocate interceding for him. The hymn goes, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. And he will never leave 
except to come get us that place in heaven. All right, we need to press on because there are two more. So we've said we have a present problem and we have a present paraclete who has made propitiation for us. The third thing, we have a present possession. Once again, the words are so important. Did you note how John writes? He says, this is what he says, right? If anyone does sin, well, you you blew it. You had an advocate. He's no more. If anyone does sin, uh, you might have him. He might come back. If anyone does sin, well, you might can make it up enough. You might can do enough good deeds. You might say enough confessions that you can have him in the future. He doesn't say that. It's some astoundingly wonderful news. Remember, if anyone sins and he doesn't put any qualifications on that as to greatness or, or, or horribleness or whatever, if anyone sins, we have. We have now. Our sin has not removed our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous, from us. And that is mighty good news. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I I love reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, never preached like Martin Lloyd-Jones, but uh, he makes an application of this concerning the encouragement, in a sense, the boldness, the confidence to which we can live our lives with the knowledge that, yes, we have sinned, but we are to use our faith and understand we have this present effectual advocate, comforter, alongside of us. He says, "...because it is the Son of God who is the propitiation." We need have no fear about our sin. My guess is many of us do. And that's because we have not really grasped what John is saying. We need have no fear about our sin. Jesus is sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And here's, I love this part. Therefore, when Satan, not your advocate, but when Satan, your adversary, comes and tries to drive you to the depth of despair and dejection because you have fallen into sin. In other words, Satan does come. Our conscience even tells us. It says, you're guilty, you did wrong. And Satan comes, you did this. And we're sitting there, yeah, I did it. And we tend to to get dejected and down. And Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, when you tend to despair and to be dejected, he says, turn upon Satan and say, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation not only for my sin, but of the sins of the whole world. I'm accepted by God. The fellowship is restored, and I continue on my way. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones is right. Not that we don't grieve, not that we're not sorry for sin, but foundationally, at the heart That's understanding 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Well, the last thing then, and this is short, but we've said we have a present problem. 
But praise God, we have a present paraclete and we have a present possession that does not go away. We have, and lastly, just the reference to verse 3. Now I can have with confidence a present practice. And that's this easy transition that John makes now. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Surely, for people who have been loved like this, surely we want to respond and say, Lord, may I show you my love by being your willing servant. I will end with these verses. Paul says basically the same thing. Paul in Romans 8 weds the issue of salvation and Jesus' intercession when he says in Romans 8, 33 and 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Intercession is like constantly hitting, you might say, the refresh on our justification, making it present, joyful, delight to walk with our God. Let us go to him in prayer. Oh Lord, may you give your people confidence in our advocate to mightily, triumphantly, absolutely successfully deal with our sin before you. And we thank you, a point I did not stress, but Lord God, our Father, you are not some stiff, judgmental judge, but you are the loving Father who sent your Son to do this. It is not love pleading before some ogre of a judge, but it is Jesus the just pleading his record to a loving Father. You have saved us. We are grateful. Let us live out our gratefulness in obedience to you. If there are those in the sound of my voice who have not yet come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, may they escape the wrath to come by trusting in this wonderful Savior. We make this our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.